0: Today, and uh, in light of that, our reading comes from the book of Amos, chapter 2, verses 4 to 16. We heard last week about the lion roars. Well, we are continuing, I think, along those lines right now. We're reading from the Christian Standard Bible, a little bit different. And uh, verse 4 says, The Lord says, I will not relent from publishing, punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. Again, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet... I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets. And some of your young men as Nazarites. Isn't this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I am about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself, and the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. May the Lord bring to us his word this morning. Thank
1: you. Well, good morning once again. Uh, if you just walked in the door, my name's uh, Stephen. I serve as an associate pastor here. Um, we're going through a new uh, sermon series in the book uh, of Amos. And before we, before we begin, uh, just put a little disclaimer in, um, God's talking at a time when Israel is quite wicked, uh, so we're going to be hitting topics that are a little gruesome, um, if you want to find them triggering and need to take a break, feel free to do so. Uh, for you with kids here, my children are here also, I've kind of used vocabulary to, to keep it up at a, another level, I um, just wanted you to know that before we, before we kind of jumped in. Now the series has been called The Unrelenting Roar and the reason is, is because when the prophetic voice starts from Amos, he says, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. So the prophet Amos is giving us a visual of how we should understand his prophetic voice. That God is like this giant strength and power, like a lion roaring against the enemies or against his own people. Uh, recently, I got to go to Taronga Zoo in, in Dubbo with my kids. And if you've ever been there, it's kind of more like a, a sanctuary kind of area. And as we were walking around and we got to where the lions were, we were feeling a bit cheated on because all the lions were down the kind of the very back of the sanctuary. And my kids were feeling like oh, we didn't get to see the lions. And uh, I like to think I'm a pretty cool dad. And I thought, I can, I can do something here about this. And so I, I walked off from my, my kids and I looked around just to make sure, and no one was around me to watch me act like an idiot. And, and I just started jumping up and down as, as much as I could, and it wasn't getting their attentions, and so I started flapping like wings, and I'm like, just trying to get these lines to come over near me. And the thing was, it worked. And it worked so well that this one lioness came kind of trotting over quite, quite speedily, looking directly at me, and as it was looking at me and coming towards me, I stopped my gobble gobbles. And I started to look at the fence like, is five meters kind of high enough? And I'd never been kind of looking at an animal ever like this, like, does this thing know everything about me? <laughs> Last week when the the lion roared, when when Chris was speaking, it was roaring against God's enemies, against the enemies of his people. And you can only imagine how good that must have felt being an Israelite or a Judahite because you'd be sitting there listening to Amos preach going, yes, yes, Amos, preach, preach, judgment upon our enemies. This kind of strength that, that supports you, a God that supports you. However, when the lion finished roaring at the enemies and where we turn to now in these verses, God's turned around and and he's looking at his people. When we're at the zoo, my kids and my wife, they just started laughing at me because they watched how fast I was shut up from this lion that was walking towards me. But I can only imagine if the lion decided to turn and run towards my wife and children, I think they would have shut up pretty quick too. (laughs) These verses that we have come to, it's to give pause to God's people, to reflect on what they are doing because they are coming under the same judgment that the enemies of God are coming under. The sermon title for this week is called Calling for God's People because God is about to lift this mighty roar up against them that they will be judged with the foreign nations. And if there's anything that I learned at the zoo that day, if you want the lion's attention, act like a fool. And what we're gonna learn in these verses is if you want to attract God's judgment, foolishly keep living in your sins. The big idea this morning is God is going to condemn those who use his salvation to live in unrepentant sin. Hear that again, God will condemn those who use his salvation to live in unrepentant sin. You see, as I said, God's condemnation is not against his enemies here. They are condemnations on those who are saved and are using that salvation To live in rejection of God and His commands. The goal, therefore, of the sermon and these passages that we're about to go through is to turn you and me back from our sinful lives, if we've gone into them again, lest we come under His judgment. And secondly, it is to show God's people that He is just when he condemns them for persistently living in unrepentant sin. If they are to fall under his judgment, it will come as no shock because the prophets have been speaking and the prophets have been warning his people that if you do not seek him and change your ways and come back to him, you will be condemned along with everyone else. How many so-called Christians are living like Israel and Judah, thinking God's judgment's just upon those guys? Yet Christians live exactly like them, and if not, worse. Preaching on this matter, I think it's of great importance for two reasons. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse my voice. And the first reason is, is because I think Christian teaching doesn't really do justice to to God's righteousness and his justice and his judgment. You can hear people retort against Christianity with kind of things, well, it's, if it's all just about forgiveness, then I can live however I want, and then when I'm getting to that time at the end, I can just ask for forgiveness and poof. It's all good. What do we say against it? Isn't that the whole story of the criminal on the cross? Let me just get a free one live how we it, and then right at the very end, just ask for some forgiveness, and you're done. As you'll find, it's quite evil thinking, and God's judgment is upon the idea that if we have these secret thoughts of a person who wants to live in sin with the knowledge that God has called you out of that sinful life, and then you're gonna try and swindle God to ask for forgiveness at the very end, well, you're probably more evil than you think. You want to live in your unrepentant sin that you know he's called you out of and then try to find a loophole. God will condemn such things. And secondly, and more importantly, in my mind it needs to be preached on because many Christians have a great knowledge of Christ dying on the cross for sins and they see it simply as a get out of free jail card that they found while they were playing Monopoly awesome, I just, I just happened upon the card, now I can just monopolize in this world, you know, do what I want and I got this freebie. The poor souls who call themselves Christians are going to be condemned, not because of a lack of knowledge, but because they unknowingly spent their salvation just trying to get ahead in life. Totally missed the point of salvation that we get to faithfully walk with our Lord daily. In all goodness and all righteousness, he calls us out of our sinful lives. And so we're going to work through this this prophetic word by noting what are God's people doing that is attracting God's judgment upon them. And as we look at these sins, we are going to pause and reflect upon our own sins. And then what we are going to do is you're going to participate in the sermon, if the Lord convicts you so, to confess your sins to God to repent of them, and then to move towards Christ. So grab your Bibles, or, or if you read on your phone, or whatever it is, your scroll, or whatever it is that you have, and we will, we will read. So what we're going to read first is Amos chapter two, verse four, and then verse six, and we're just gonna read the top sections. It's also displayed on the screen. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because, dot, dot, dot. That's four. And then in six, he pronounces another judgment on, on, on his people. I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, crimes, even four, because, dot, dot, dot. And as we saw last week, Chris said that uh, those words for, for three, even four, is proverbial of the patience of God enduring in the sins of his people. Well Chris also explained, Pastor Chris also explained last week, there was that God's people, the, the nation of Israel, was once one and unified under one king that was under King David, right? And then, and then Solomon came in his steed. But then after Solomon passed... Civil rivalry broke out and the the nation was split into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern being Israel, called here, or we know it as Samaria, mostly in the New Testament. And then you got the southern kingdom of of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, which is where the the throne of David is in the temple. Now this is important because Judah, the southern kingdom, (coughs) is the true place of worship of God, that's the temple. And they are also the true people who have the throne of David. And so theirs is the true theology of God and theirs is the right of the only true king. And Jesus makes a point of this to the woman in the world in chapter four of John. But then you have in Israel's kingdom up in the northern section, you have a king called Jeroboam. He was the first one who solidified that kingdom. And his biggest fear was that if his people were to go into true worship back down south, that they'd all turn on him and go back to the true king. And so what he did was he established worship practices up in the north to Yahweh so that the people wouldn't go down. He put in his own priests who were not priests at all. And what happened with Israel, the Northern kingdom, was they broke away from sound theology, and they tried to worship Yahweh through malpractice. Now I give this background because it really exemplifies these two kingdoms of God's people, these fractured two kingdoms of God's people, kind of uh, exemplify for us two types of churches. <clears throat> You know, you've got Judah, that's in the south, they, they exemplify this kind of a Christian church built on, on sound theology, on, on ancestral traditions handed down. You know, we'd, we'd call that today kind of the traditional conservative church. And from my pastoral experience, WDBC probably broadly would fit more in alignment with that. And then you have Israel in the north who exemplifies kind of the Christian church that is, that's bucked the traditions. They want to live that free kind of spiritual worship life. We'd we'd kind of call that the contemporary charismatics. And looking at the divide, you might place yourself kind of in one of two of these camps. If you're a good uh, Australian Baptist, you put yourself right down the middle. Because Lord forbid you be too extreme one way or the other. And however you might view yourself, what God looks at when he looks at these two nations. (coughs) is he sees something really... Wrong, And he's going to condemn both of them. And so we move now to look at the sins of Judah. Read with me in chapter 2, 4 and 5. I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they've rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. So firstly, what they've done is they've rejected the instructions of the Lord. They're no longer listening to the word of God. And secondly, they've stopped following his statutes. They've stopped doing what he said as a result of no longer listening to what God says. And that might come as a shock to us. How does a conservative, a traditional church, even like WDBC, which prides itself in good theology, how does it get to the point where it stops listening to God's instructions and following them? And the answer is found here where it says they followed the lies of their ancestors which led them astray. Their inherited idolatry and sins were listened to and they stopped listening to God. To show you what I mean by this, if we were to go to Kings, we're not going to, I read through so you didn't have to, if we were to go to first to and second kings and go through that book, and we were to go from the end of second kings and read our way backwards, only noting the kings of Judah, what you would find there is kind of uh, these overviews, these summaries of the kings and their legacies that they li- lived, had left, sorry. And they kind of summarize in one of two ways. If it was a bad king. We didn't follow God it was summarized like this king such and such did what was wrong in the eyes of God and he increased in the sins of the fathers in the idolatry and the bad practices but if it was a good king it would say king such and such did what was right in the eyes of God he was good however he did not remove the idolatry and the people kept using them they couldn't get rid of what their ancestors had put in. Now, if you trace that far enough back, sorry. If you trace that far, back, far enough back to where the root is, the root is King Solomon. 300 years before where we are today in the text, they are still a compromised people because they are practicing what their forefathers instituted. What King Solomon did, as many of us knew, was he broke the laws of God by marrying foreign women. It was a forbidden practice in marriage that he was not supposed to do, but because of his lust for women, these women that came from the foreign nations, they brought in their foreign gods, he had children to these women, and what happened was he became an idolater, and he and his wives taught the children how to do idolatry and on and on it goes through the generations until it has pervaded the whole nation of Israel. Now this is the power of parenthood and marriage. So think wisely about who you're going to marry and how you parent your children back at home. It's through forbidden marriage Solomon became the idolater, as I said, and the kids learnt it. And as a result, these children are unknowingly in sins and are now condemned because they trusted what was handed down to them they trust what was handed down to them and they stopped listening to God now you might think to yourself <clears throat> it's not me let's, let's reflect and consider the matter Solomon and the kingdom of Judah never stopped worshiping God in true practice at the temple and through the sacrificial system. They were still very traditional, still very conservative towards their worship of God. Their ancestral idolatry was this, they worshiped God and the other gods. It was the addition of the other ones. We think, oh, it's just outright idolatry. You go to another religion or another god. No, it's not. Ancestral idolatry will often sound like this. You can have God and these other things. Show orthodox devotion to God. He is God after all, but you know, also you know, live for something else. Bow down to God at church, but when you get home, bow down to all these other things. And when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament describes idolatry not just in terms of other gods and other altars, but as ways of living that we wouldn't naturally consider or assume to be idolatry. I'll give you two instances, I'm sorry I didn't put them up on the slides, but the first one comes from Ephesians 5.5, where it says, for this you can be sure that no immoral or impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Or again, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, and 6, along the same vein, put to death therefore what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So you might say, well, I'm safe from idolatry because I don't worship in another religion. But tell me, do you bow down to the same altars that most people bow down to, which is sexual immorality and greed? Sexual immorality, lust, porn, fornication, the unhealthy obsession of giving yourself over to sexual desires that God has said no to. Do you bow down to them when you get on your apps or the websites, maybe it's on the, on the TV, maybe it's when the boyfriend or the girlfriend says the parents aren't home. Gratifying your eyes on other people's flesh or maybe your lust problem is you want people to gratify themselves on your flesh. When we do these things, scripture says that's idolatry. You bow when you worship something else. Now the culture might accept it, but where did you get it from? You didn't get it from God. It was handed to you. It's become normative. Maybe that's not your thing. You're like, phew, glad I'm not in that camp. What about Greed. The ungodly and perverse obsession of always wanting more, the bottomless gullet of people's appetites that just want more wealth, more possessions, more delicate things, never satisfying the cravings. And this God manifests himself in many different ways. You can worship God on Sunday, but the other six days, you just go worship that bank account of yours. You just go worship that superannuation that you're saving up. Go worship that career or that portfolio, just jam your house full of expensive stuff over and over again, always complaining of all the burdensome things that you now have acquired in life. You're just like the person that Jesus talks about. Well, I've got a big silo, it's all full. Woe is me, I've got to build a bigger silo now to just fit all my stuff into it. Where does it end? It's idolatry, you serve money over God. And from the few people that I've spent much of my discipleship time with here, this idol passed down Seems to be one of the hard ones to throw away. You might say, well, <clears throat> I don't teach my kids those things. Definitely wasn't taught them off my folks. You might not have been explicitly taught them through words at all, but that's not exactly how ancestral idolatry works. In fact, it's taught by your lifestyle and how you live. That's what kids watch more than anything else. And so let's not get it twisted, a parent who teaches their child, look, go to church, learn the good theology of God, you know, do the traditional conservative thing, and then proceeds to go and live their whole life for work, money, investments, and the priority in life over God is going to produce the same idolatry in their kids that they have. And so we pause now in the sermon to reflect on Judah's sins and our own sins. What comes to mind when you think of what has been handed down to you from maybe your father or your mother? It might not even be the things that I've mentioned. It could be things like addictions, tempers, a lying, a gossiping or a crude tongue, laziness, maybe a victim mentality. What are you clinging to that was given to you that you need to confess to God? You live in this way like your forefathers. You see, God told the Israelites, when you possess land of the enemies or when you find something of idolatry in the camp, completely eradicate it and move it so it is remembered no more, so no one will follow it. A whole family line was taken away from Israel because they coveted things that they shouldn't have. So this is going to be the first place where we pause. And I'm going to invite you with some quiet time to close your eyes, to bow your heads, and as the Holy Spirit leads, to confess those things to God that he lays on your heart. You see, the funny thing about confession is God doesn't need to know what it is in like, he doesn't go, oh wow, I didn't know that you actually had that sin until you told me. He knows it already. He tells you to confess it, to bring it out into the light so he can forgive it. So we are going to spend some time praying to the Lord And asking for forgiveness for those things that we have taken up that we should have not. Let's do that now. the things that we have naturally inherited. To understand what is right and wrong in your sight. Father, to lay down those things that have been given to us naturally. And Lord, to take up your will. Father, I pray for the congregation as they have confessed their sins to you. Lord, you say that you are faithful and that you forgive. Father, I pray that you would anoint them and bless them, that they would live in repentance of their sins and not go back into them or conform to them. I pray this also for myself, Lord. Would you bless us in your name? Amen. We now move into Israel and their sins. Read with me in chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God, they drink wine, Obtained through fines. So the, fin- uh, the lion, sorry, is finished, <clears throat> kind of roaring down at the south, and, and now he he looks over, you know, to the to the north and to their sins and the things that were culturally normative, this, the social sins that are taking place. And he's showing that they're breaking all the commandments and the laws of God. And that's important because they are a covenant people. They're a godly people to live according to God. And they're just systematically breaking all these things. And I've broken them into to four bigger groups. The first thing that they're doing is they're promoting or practicing, practicing sorry, slavery. They are perverting uh, the legal system or, or justice. They are degrading sex and women and possibly the promotion, and this is where it gets a bit worse, the coerced, coerced immoral sex. And lastly and worst of all, they are trying to justify their sins through a false religion. Due to time, I'll, I'll try and just do this quickly, but we'll reflect and we'll pray towards the end. So just note that we're going to look at these things, these social structures that are normal in their society, and then overlay that into our own, and I did as best as I could to look at how the Australian culture still holds to these things. Now, Got a very long conversation, short and, and risk oversimplification on the first one on the practice and the promotion of slavery. God's people, under the Torah law, were never to practice slavery as we know it and think of it today. In fact, this is exactly what Amos is condemning. There was a certain form of slavery called bond servants that was allowed within Torah law. And this practice was to help fellow Israelites who had incurred large amounts of debt, they weren't able to pay, maybe they had to get rid of their land, where they could give themselves into slavery of another to work off their debts while simultaneously being housed and fed with their families. And within this structure that God had had set up for the Jews, there was the seven-year slavery service where they got out after the seven years, there's the Jubilee when all debts were forgiven, And then there was also a lot of ethical conducts on how you could treat someone who put themselves into bond servitude to you. If you wanna read more of those things, you can. That's Exodus 21, Leviticus 19 and 25 and Deuteronomy 15. But Israel had forsaken the Torah law on how to practice slavery righteously before God and they started a malpractice. What they did was, according to the verses, is they would sell off a fellow Israelite (coughs) for minor debts. They wouldn't be patient, they wouldn't be gracious as soon as you went into a bit of debt before them, they could put you into this slavery system and then once they were in them, they treated them as poorly as, or sold them for as little as a pair of sandals. And obviously a practice like this is going to hurt the majority of the poor whilst at the same time it makes the rich richer. Now, slavery is a foreign concept to us, but the motivation behind slavery is still very near. Slavery is simply put, greedy people who want to attain wealth or maintain their wealth at the expense of degrading or shortchanging another's work. I'll give two examples that are current for us in Australia. Number one, Chris already touched on this week, but buying clothes at a cheap price is culturally normal for us. I'm just kind of always buying new and new clothes. We just try and keep up with fashion, right? But that cheap price that you're buying generally comes because there's little children working in sweatshops. So when you buy the little $5 shirts, You're doing that at the expense of someone else who's being forced into a type of slavery or a minimum wage. If you wanna look at more of this, Baptist Care actually does a ton of work in this area. You can go look them up online. They've got a complete ethical guide fashion system that you can look at to make sure that when you buy things, you're not buying them from bad places. The second example that I'll give is underpayment of staff or extortion prices for services. In Australia, we have a law, obviously, that mandates the minimum wage. However, for people that have people that they employ, you might wanna consider the livability of the wage, especially here in Sydney. If paying the bare minimum is lawful by the country, but it is not a livable income for the person who works for you, and the reason that you pay them the bare minimum is to scrape every dollar that you can off them, you might wanna reconsider not the laws of the land, but is it sin in the eyes of God to not fairly pay someone who works for you? But furthermore, someone that's been both a business owner and worked in businesses, and especially services and trade, don't overcharge for your services. Judge the true worth of your item and your labor. It doesn't matter the bare minimum that the government sets and it doesn't matter the going rate of the other company. Judge for yourself in the eyes of God, is what I'm doing for my work a blessing to the whole community to make the whole place richer or am I just feeding my greed at the expense of other people? Be mindful how you do your business. We join hands in the culture's sins of slavery if we are attaining wealth or trying to maintain our wealth by shortchanging other people. The second one that we now look at is perversion of justice in legal matters. The second cultural norm of Israel was to trample the poor, it says, or obstruct the path of the needy. And that's a reference in verse seven, that's a reference to denying them fair trial in court. So you had the affluent or the wealthy rigging the court systems, they were bribing the judges to make sure that justice wouldn't prevail. And it was also, people were just taking one another to court and through legal means, were trying to obtain wealth for themselves by stealing it off another. Two examples again that we can give of Australia. the Australian dream, getting on compo, <laughs> right? It's a legal means to go on compensation. But how many of those compensations are claims that have been done that are highly exaggerated, that shouldn't be paid at the rate that they are, or they were completely done hoping to get injured? so that you could steal another person's wealth through a legal process in which you can go, well, that's just the laws of the land. Another example in which I conferred with someone else and apparently it's true and accurate is when the floods went through the Hawkesbury, packages, care packages by the government went out and you could apply for money and, and they would help you and many people who were in the right zones could apply for them. But they didn't actually have any flood damage to the property. And so they were making money on the poor misfortune of their neighbors who actually had real issues. And so what was happening was these people that couldn't actually get any plaster up on their walls had a neighbor next door who was putting in a hedge just because they wanted to maximize their property. You leave no money for the actual people who need it. Many more things could be said on this, but do you and I use the Australian legal system or maybe it's government support in a way that we exploit it and then we leave nothing for people that actually need the systems. Number three, in verse 7b, we talk now about the degradation of sex, women, and possibly coercion. This next sin breaks a few of God's commands from borderline incestual connotations, to fornication and adultery, to possible allegations of a female not wanting to And the reason that we say this one this last one is because this Hebrew word for girl may imply that she's a female slave and that also if you give the text the context around it is predominantly talking about the enslavement or victimization of people therefore she's possibly being mistreated by her master and the master's sons. Whatever the case, this one again isn't very hard to cross over into the Australian context. I'll give two examples again, and we'll look at whether she's willfully or unwillfully participating. In the idea that she is unwillingly participating, which we all know is very foul, we have to ask, do we join hands with it somewhere in our culture? I think the blindingly obvious one is do you look at pornography? You find many research papers and stats that show many of those people were coerced at the very time of its making. You'll find that they were coerced because it was just an unfortunate place that they found themselves in. Or you will find that they were so degraded in their childhood that they didn't feel any worth in themselves, and that's why they went into the industry. So when you watch it, you agree with it. Or what about the fact that the porn industry and things like famous literatures like Fifty Shades of Grey, they promote the idea So when you buy, and you read, and you watch, what are you doing? You're joining hands with something foul. The second one, let's suppose that she's just as guilty as the man in the act, she's an adulterer as well, and doesn't care about family boundaries, and neither do the men. How do we see this one? The world's gone so far with sex that we don't think anything really about fornication anymore. That's sex outside of wedlock. Nor does the world at the moment seem anything too bad about adultery. It's on Facebook, just on my little scroll. And I saw an Australian tabloid that was talking about a celebrity that was just committed adultery. And the headline was this. Should we cut him some slack? Let's admit it, most of us have done it. This is the culture. Do we join the hands with it? Have we made fornication commonplace in the church? Ah, it's just the years that you go through when you're younger. Has adultery become so prevalent in the church? Are we can't even tell the difference between a church marriage and, a, and a, just a normal commonplace marriage. And also on the ancestral part, where do we draw boundaries? Because the culture that they're in in, wasn't even drawing boundaries at this kind of thing. And so are we just gonna take cues from it? lot again, a lot more could be said on marriage. these grotesque acts scripture says profanes the name of God. What does that mean? Well it means that people look at us and we commit these horrible things and they go well if you serve this God Jesus and you act like this then he's disgusting. You make his holy name look horrible. And people don't wanna go to him on account of what we do. You profane my name among the nations. Have we joined hands with what's culturally normative in our time? And the last one is justification of sins through religion. These people, if you look with me again, if we just go to verse eight, they stretch out beside every altar, right? It's religious. On garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. So what we have here is we have these people who are taking garments off people, the cloaks off other people, and this was the practice. You could go and, and give your garment as collateral for something that you needed, and that was okay. That was Torah law. But at the end of the day, you had to hand it back. And the reason that you had to hand it back was because your cloak was what kept you warm at night so that you could sleep. And God didn't want any of his people not being able to have a good rest. But people were holding on to them. And then they were just spreading out all these poor and needy people's cloaks on the ground at the altar of God. And then through heavy fines, through taking their money off other poor people, then they're just slowly getting themselves drunks and lavishly living it up, and yahoo, it's all for Jesus, look at our prosperity. They go to church with their wealth, they put the 10% in the bag, look how big my 10% is, and they stole it off everyone. Have a huge festival, A big church with all the big grand things in it. And outside the church, in the community, stricken with poverty. But don't worry about it, because we're tithing it. I like the big laundering system. How bad is God going to condemn us who practice this kind of form of Christianity? worshiping God with the poverty of others. And the play on words here in Amos is it says they spread out besides every altar. That means there's multiple altars. Again, we're in the northern tribes here. They shouldn't even be worshiping at these places because God never said to do that. And it says they worship their God. God has no part with what they're doing. They say they worship Yahweh with what they're doing. He rejects it. And all they're really trying to do with this religion is justify the corrupt way in which they're living. Tell me, has WDBC joined hands with the many false Christian churches that hold festivals and celebrations that lavish itself with all the fine things, right, while the is in poverty? Do we just take, 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 take from the Hawkesbury community and then make ourselves feel better through the tithe. But really, we just took it from the hands of those who need it. If we do this, then we don't really worship the one true God. We worship a God that we just want to make us feel better about the corruption that we're living in. We might feel justified, but God looks at us and says, actually, you're condemned. And so again, we pause, we reflect. We confess and we pray. What sins are we guilty of? Whether that's personally or corporately. What is this church doing? That is wrong. Where have we fallen into cultural norms that God detests? And are we just using our religion to justify the sins that we do? So I'm going to ask you. Bow your heads and to ask for the Lord to show you and I where are these things taking place. Let's do that. is commonplace amongst us but Lord to walk in ways that are righteous before you that are right before you help us again I pray father in your name Amen we read now 9 through to 12 and it says yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced His heights were like the cedars, and he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath, and I brought you out from the land of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as the prophets and some of your young women as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. we are looking here at these verses is God's salvation testimony that he gave to Israel his people didn't I take you out of bondage out of Egypt and make you free didn't I destroy the Amorites before you because their sins were so bad that I used you as my judgment to go in and possess the land didn't I patiently lead you for 40 years while you rebelled against me in the desert? Didn't I do these things for you? And I've sent you the prophets and I've sent you the holy man, the Nazarenes, and you're now rejecting me in your freedoms that I've given you. It's the testimony of a soul. Tell me brothers and sisters, what is our testimony of Jesus that we all share in common? Did God free you and did he liberate you from your fleshly selves to no longer live under the false and evil desires that you have but to now live for God? Did he do that? He did. But more than this, did he give you victory over death, over the evil spiritual forces and lay them all at your feet? That you no longer have to succumb to temptation or the acts of the devil? Did he do that for his people? He did. Did he free you from the fear of death so that you can live to the will of God? He did. Has he not provided for you an eternal security that is yours in Jesus Christ so that you can give up everything in this life to pursue all of godliness so that you can walk into the next. Did he do that for you? That is the testimony that we all hold. And he is telling them this, if I've given you this freedom, if I've given you all things, why are you rejecting me? Remember whose you are. Remember the salvation that he has given you in Jesus Christ. That it took the blood of his son to free you. That's the price it was paid for you. In this last section that reads from 13 to 16, He says, look, I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. You see, the wealthy, they're kind of, they're crushing the heads of the poor in the dirt. And then you have this imagery of grain, which is practically the wealth of people. And he says, I'm going to use the wealth against you and it will be crushing over you when I judge you escape will fail, the swift, the strong one will not maintain his strength and so on it goes about the warrior not being able to save his life even to the point of he's going to flee naked on that day this is the Lord's declaration and the idea was was in in this time frame as Pastor Chris has already laid out for us there was actually pretty good prosperity in the land and what Israel and Judah were relying on was their political strength was their wealth and was their, their armed forces But what's that if God comes to judge them? As quickly as God has given all of that to them, and that's what they're trusting in, as quickly as he can take it all away, they abused what he gave them. They misused what he gave them, and they no longer glorified God with everything that was theirs, and they used it to treat each other poorly and they profaned the name of God among the nations. A saved people out of Egypt did this. Christians, you and I are the saved people of God through Jesus Christ. He bled and died for our sins. They will call him Jesus because he will save them from their sin. Not just the punishment of sin. Sin. Your life should look wildly different to the path that it was on before. You are the redeemed. You have been purchased by God to be new, to be transformed into the image of Christ, your true king. We are under his lordship and we are under his reign and that is a beautiful thing because the lordship and the reign of Jesus and everything that he wants to conform us to is good. It is beautiful, it is right, it is holy, it is self-sacrificial, it is where joy is and every good thing. My burden is light, Jesus says. My yoke is easy. It's good to be under his reign. But when we reject that lordship by the way that we choose to live and we pursue it in unrepentance, then be careful how you tread and how you walk before your Lord. He is compassionate and he is forgiving and he is faithful to the one that will reckon with their sin and bring them to him. But he will not be fooled by a fake Christian religion that shows greater devotion to idols in the world than to him. Nor will he be swindled by a type of Christianity that worships him lavishly but takes advantage of everyone around them. He is our Lord and He is our God, and we are under His judgment, so work out your salvation with trembling and in fear. He is roaring because He is calling you to Himself. And the only thing that remains is will we heed and listen to the voice of God? Let's pray. God, you are our Father. And even when you rebuke us, you love us. And Scripture says that you discipline the ones that are yours. Father, if we have been living in our sin, if we have just been pursuing this world like the rest of the world, Turn our hearts back to you. Turn our minds back to you. Father, help us to live as your saved people, as you truly called us to be. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.